Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Sanchez Sain, co-founder of Oliva. In this episode, we talked about the necessary elements you need to build a world-class marketing team, the impact a company's go-to-market strategy has on choosing the right team members, and the inspiration behind Oliva. We also discussed Sanchez's move from building teams as a VP back to the scrappy stage of a one-man marketing team, the importance of getting deep insights and feedback at the very start of building a product, and how those insights helped clarify Oliva's positioning. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Sancho, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, Sancho is the co-founder of Oliva, a modern online therapy service for people who care as much about their mental health as they do their physical health. He is also the former VP of marketing at Hotjar and Typeform and led marketing at GetApp. So it's fair to say he's had his fair share of building and growing top-performing marketing teams. So my first question for you, Sancho, is, what are the elements you believe are necessary to build a world-class marketing team? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's going to sound like a cliche, right? But of course it comes down to, to the people. You, you definitely need the right people. There's an analogy, right? Of um, getting the right people on the bus, the right, pe- uh, sorry, the wrong people off the bus and then, um, and then deciding where you're going. And I think that applies to running companies or individual teams as well. And it definitely applies to, to marketing so just make sure you've got the right people the right resources then set those people up for success down to those processes as i mentioned down to budgets down to uh ownership does everybody know what they own what they're supposed to do why they're there all of that kind of stuff and then set the right direction so that they can execute on that but ultimately it comes down to making sure the team feels like they have a purpose and every day they come in and they're executing against something. It's because they, they know why they're doing it essentially. Yeah. I, I like the analogy of the bus. And I think uh, like for yourself as well, you've come into companies where the teams may be already established the marketing team and needing to improve things and grow it from there. And you also like starting from the ground up. So how do you go about deciding like who is the right people for the bus that and this journey that you're going on and what are the like skills that you want in this marketing team? So I think both maybe Hotjar and Typeform had a similar uh, market that they were going after, had a similar customer mm-hmm. profile that they were going after and a similar maybe go-to-market strategy. So like 
how do you go about deciding, okay, what are these key roles? What are the profiles that I need to be looking for in this team that I want to be building? What are the criteria that you're basing this off? Yeah, so like you said, Typeform and Hotjar are very similar go-to-markets, really very similar types of companies in a way. So different products, but similar sales motions, let's say. So Typeform and Hotjar were very much based on a self-serve model. We had the freemium element of the product, which meant that we cast our net wide, got a lot of people in, and then, then you convert a few, right? You convert a few to customers. But it means when you have a motion like that, you can't be talking to every single person individually. You talk to people through marketing, right? You talk to people through communication, through messaging, and things like that. And of course, both of those companies uh, did and do have a sales, like a one-to-one element to them, but it wasn't the main part of the go-to-market, at least in my time. So when you're looking for those skills, essentially, that's an important piece of information because there's a big difference between people who their bread and butter, their day-to-day is picking up the phone and having one-to-one conversations with people and leading them through something, explaining a problem and giving them the solution versus doing that through mass communication, through one-to-many communications, whether that's emails, whether that's uh, website copy or, or design or whatever it might be. So my perspective on that, thinking about the sales motions and the go-to-market strategies of those two companies is when I look for the right people for the team, it's people who are amazing communicators, but through the one-to-many motions, through email, through web marketing, through content. Content has always been a big part of what I've done in my teams. So yeah, good communicators with the masses rather than the few. Makes a lot of sense. So really trying to understand the business model, how you acquire customers, uh, the volume of customers you're acquiring, and then that's sort of dictating the skill set that the team needs to have. So I'm interested now as well, and maybe before we jump into any specific questions around it, is you've decided to leave Hotjar now as well. Obviously, we work there together and you've decided to start your own business, Oliva. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit more about it, like where the inspiration came from. And then I want to dive into like your thought process now, like going about building this up from scratch and uh, looking it through the lens now as a founder versus a VP or exec at a company. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the idea itself wasn't mine. The idea was had already been born, let's say, in the head of, of my co-founder of uh, Javi. And I just loved it. I loved it because the concept comes from the idea that the industry around accessing therapy and, and managing your therapy experience is very outdated, is very clinical, and just lacks any kind of experience designed into it. And I'll give you an example. So I've, I've been through, through a therapy experience myself. I dealt with a bit of burnout and things like that, professional burnout. And I went to this therapist office. The therapy itself was great. Nothing really broken there. It was fine. But nothing around that therapy service was designed for therapy. So the location was basically just an uh, an apartment with bedrooms that was converted into a therapy office. This is very typical where I live in in Barcelona. There was no insulation between uh, the therapist session rooms. So you could literally hear conversations from room to room, uh, which already put you on the back foot and just made you feel like it wasn't completely your space. You had to deal with payment every time after you finished a session, and then you'd have to sync your calendars for the next session. You couldn't do that online. So I know I'm talking quite a niche problem, especially from where I'm living at the moment. But actually, when you go online, those kind of problems are amplified, not necessarily in the same way exactly, but 
often what you see online is that the therapy offerings are over-engineered just so that technology can be used. So I think what we're forgetting is that therapy itself works very well and technology should support the experience but not replace the experience. And that's what we believe Oliva. We believe that it should be powered by people and supported by technology. So it's, it's very simple. We make sure that we have high quality therapists. So they go through a very stringent recruitment process. They have to have a minimum of seven years experience. We offer a match guarantee. So that's one of the biggest pain points of stepping into therapy, the kind of anxiety around actually being matched with the right person and the expense of doing that. So we take on a lot of that burden. And then we just made the whole thing very simple with the technology. So booking management, cancellation, all of that kind of stuff is just very easy. So yeah, the idea wasn't mine, but it was definitely something that I connected with straight away. And you resonated. Yeah, it, it definitely, yeah. I think we talked a little bit about before the show. I also last year sometime as well, I decided like I wanted to chat to somebody. I went onto an online service and just gave up halfway through because I found that the yeah. Like you, the amount of effort that was required to go and get something set up felt extremely difficult. And then also, like you say, trying to put too many substitutions in the way, like setting up chat messages and forms and forgetting mm. the human elements of it is, I think, was like one of the biggest pain points I felt at least then and just decided not to go through with it. But um, Which is a shame, right? It's a shame exactly. because it should be made easy. You shouldn't be put off by just the process um, itself. It's so easy to fix. So yeah, it's a shame that happens, but that's that's what we're trying to fix. And a lot of time as well, like I think this goes to any good product building and any good marketing or any like understanding your user and understanding the pain points that they're going through and realizing like at that point in time, a person who wants to go to speak to somebody is typically like to get to the point to do that. They also take a lot of effort to actually do that. So making that step and that as easy as possible makes total sense to me what you're doing and what you're building. And really trying to create that experience around it. Really cool. So now I'm interested uh, from your side as well. Like I, I mentioned before, you're getting started again. You're starting to build now something for yourself. Obviously, marketing is a component of this. And I think like when we think about the context of churn and retention, positioning come, becomes extremely important, like understanding who your customer is, like building out your go-to-market strategy to make sure that you're bringing in the right people through the door and that uh, you've got the right business model for them like it's a very broad question but maybe do you want to talk us through what is your thought process now around all of this like how are you approaching this like as uh sancho and uh, co-founder i'm not sure how big the team is now but obviously needing to be a little bit more scrappy a little bit less resources like where mm. are you focusing first what do you think is the most critical component to get started with yeah it's funny actually because i gone full circle so when i think back to the different marketing teams that i've been a part of the first proper one, let's say, was a very small marketing. It was essentially myself and one other person or two other people we got to because we used to operate. This was in Trovitz where we used to operate as managers of different country websites. So we'd have to do the whole kind of end-to-end process of marketing and sales and everything. And then I moved into a more uh, into a company where I built a more uh, medium-sized team, let's say, but more focused on a particular function within marketing content. And then Typeform built out an even bigger function. We had, I think, 23 people at its height in my time in the marketing team. And we had all of the different marketing function, functions you could think of almost. And then at Hotjar, it was a slightly scaled down version of that, but in a remote environment. So I've come back full circle because I'm back to that very scrappy stage where the first option I have isn't to hire people. The first option I have is just to really make sure that the next two steps I take are the most critical steps. 
And I actually can't plan too much for the next two or three steps after that by hiring people now, for example. So in some of my previous roles, that's part of the job coming into a company that already has yeah. product market fit, that where you have the, the luxury of budget, you plan for the future. You come in and you say, what needs to happen? When does it need to happen? And how do we put the right building blocks in place now to make that happen? And that's usually hiring and setting up team structures and things like that. Now it's obviously a lot uh, scrappier. So essentially the marketing team is myself. We're working with a few people like a core team here on the project and we're working with a lot of freelancers. So it's basically managing freelancers and trying to get everybody to buy into the vision when they're not necessarily fully part of the team yet, which is a challenge in itself. So what I've learned and what I'm bringing to this next journey, let's say, is the basics really. Truly understand your customer truly understand what pain points they have and then build everything around that and then keep iterating through feedback loops. And I've made mistakes in the past where I haven't done this so much. Quite honestly, at Typeform, we were very much a like a vision-led company, innovation-led, and that led to a lot of the success we had at Typeform. But actually, we forgot sometimes to talk to the customer as much as we should have. And it meant we didn't iterate quickly enough on on certain parts of the product and, and our marketing. And we got a little bit further away from the customer than we should have. Hotjar is, is very good at being close to the customer and constantly talking to the customer and getting feedback and, and iterating based on that. So coming into this role, I've got the kind of perspective of being at different ends of the spectrum and seeing where that balance needs to be and hopefully applying that learning to this. So the very first thing I'm doing is, is just talking to as many people as possible but one-to-one. So I'm not, I'm not thinking, right, what's the advertising campaign we can put out in front of a couple of thousand people to get awareness of Oliver? That's not really how I'm thinking. I'm thinking, how can I speak to five to 10 people and get some really deep insights and feedback from them? And then when I have that, build it into the marketing and into the product and then go back to them and go to another 10 people as well and say, okay, now what? Now what do you think? And literally keep doing that. And as you do that, you're building out this kind of core group of, not I wouldn't call them beta users, but essentially your extended founding team that just are giving you so much incredible information. And these are the people that ultimately will help get the brand off the ground, I think, rather than just putting a fancy ad in front of as many people as possible. There'll be time for that later on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think obviously as well, like myself, I started again with something new now and very similar approach, really just like constantly speaking to people now uh, interviews really trying to understand who the product's for and like the like the comment that you made as well about uh, type form being like really innovation led and then hot job being very customer led and getting a balance in between because i think it's, it's a tough one to know which end of the balance you want to take at some point you want to be able to be innovative enough to deliver something that wows people and that can separate you from the rest of the pack but then at the same time you also want to make sure that you're innovating in the right way and that what you are going to be delivering at the end of the day is not just going to be a surprise and months of work that nobody ends up using. It's cool that you have that experience now and you're trying to gauge it. But let's talk a little bit more about these interviews that you're having because I think this for me as well, like you say, it's all about starting from the who and the what and what are their pain points? Who are these people? That just solves everything, I think, when it comes to general attention, knowing who your customer is and knowing what their problem is like really knowing deeply inside and out is probably the best way that you can go about preventing it. And 
ultimately, I think prevention uh, is better than cure or prevention is better than churn. So in your case now, like, what is your process for these interviews? Like, have you got anything structured in place where you're going into them now and how are you conducting them? Yeah, I'm not going to pretend that I've got like the most, the fanciest process or I'm following the latest playbook or anything, but I will, I'll take you through what I've done and it's been extremely useful for me. So the first thing we did was we got a, like a V1 version of our website out, which acts like a baseline for us. It's important. So we actually had a version before that, a v, uh, V0.9, I suppose you could call it. But I didn't want to get feedback on that version because I knew that I wanted to make many changes to that website simply because it was just a, a way to quickly get something up, serve the purpose at the time to collect a few email addresses, etc. But it wasn't the baseline that I wanted to be getting feedback on. I wanted something that I thought, okay, this is something I believe in and I can build on this. So there needs to be almost, from my perspective, there needs to be a little bit of me first perspective, just so that you're happy that's the right baseline to be starting from. Once you have that baseline, which for us was the second version of the, the website, we put it live. And then I just put a request out to my network and said, look, if you're happy to give some feedback on something new I'm working on, I would really appreciate it. And I had a really good response to that. Got an amazing network in this space. Everybody's out to help each other, which is fantastic. So I got a really good response. I set up a simple Typeform survey where I asked people to look at that website and then I answered, asked them some questions. And it was roughly based around the SuperQ uh, usability survey. So just a few kind of questions where you score them. And then there's like an MPS question at the end. So we ask, are you likely to recommend this to somebody else? And then we have some, I put some qualitative questions in there. So what do you think we're trying to, what problem are we trying to solve? What do you think we're explaining X, Y, and Z enough, et cetera? So we just asked some questions like that. From that survey, I got an amazing response. And on the LinkedIn post where I put the request for the feedback in the first place, I got an even better response. Loads of like really kind people just willing to give feedback. And I set up probably 15, 20 phone calls with people. Plus I had 65, 70 responses through the type form. So I had this flood of amazing information. And what, what I realized was you get to a point where you reach a kind of uh, a point where you get diminishing returns, right? So you get enough yeah. feedback that you've got clear themes from that feedback and whatever feedback comes in on top of that, it's great to have it, but you're not really surfacing new new themes. You're getting edge cases and, and hearing more of the same. So actually I, I found in my previous roles, you can get quite far with just 10 interviews. 10 is a relatively good number to get a good idea of what's going on. But in this case, having 60, 60, 70 responses to the type form was definitely very useful. So from that, there were three, I would say, key themes that needed to be worked on from the communication point of view on the website, and then a few kind of design-related themes. And then we took that, we made a decision. Do we agree with these? Do we think people have missed the mark? And actually, no, we agreed with everything. It all made sense. And then we took those themes and then tried to solve for them in the next version. And the next version will go live soon. And I'll do the whole process all over again. I'll go back to that group of people and say, now what do you think? And basically just keep doing this until our message is super clear. Our value proposition is super clear. And I think if we can do that for a couple of feedback rounds, I'm going to be pretty confident that the website that we've created from a communication point of view is going to be ready to to share and then we can set up the ads, then we can send people to it. 
But if I think back to that first version of the website, which quite honestly, I thought I was happy with, I was like, this is great. We're explaining the problem in a really clear way. What I realized was the problem that I was explaining was not the problem people cared about. (laughs) So the feedback was super useful. So this just helps add a certain level of confidence to the way you communicate. And this this just uh, permeates through everything else you do in terms of uh, any branding project you, project you do, all of the copy you do, and actually the product you build as well. Yeah, it's like a copywriting and positioning masterclass doing customer interviews. <laughs> it's just the best. Yeah. So it's very interesting as well because I think like exactly that's what the process I've been following. Almost, uh, I think similarly, really started out just with that website because also for myself, it helped me put my ideas down and like really understand, okay, is this... The problem I'm trying to solve is this the solution. Like before starting to build any product or to build any sort of UI or design or anything like that, it was really first saying, okay, can I get what's in my head out onto some form of communication that people can understand? And then do people get it and does it resonate? I think that was like the first thing I wanted to do. answer. And like the process that you're saying now, just going through these interviews, hearing the different pain points, hearing the messaging that people come back with. And like the way you describe the problem is maybe one out of, 10 people, two out of 10 people, but then you find different ways that people are talking about it and then it resonates with you as well. And then like that copy and those words that people use, like is gold, I think at the end of that, like you said, like don't start with the ads, like the copy is coming from your customers, coming from the interviews that you have and it all starts from there. Have you seen the product itself change in your mind, like since going through these interviews or has that not, like how much has the product evolved from that first version that you put out there versus what you're putting out today? Yeah, so uh, it has. Just to give you a couple of examples. So one thing we put a lot of emphasis on our first version of the website was the quality of the different technology interactions when taking, when receiving therapy so for example we put, put a lot of emphasis on the fact that we will promise high quality audio and video video quality because it was very much from our perspective from a technology perspective that was really important like it really annoys us when when you do video therapy and the video is really bad quality or the audio is is very echoey or uh, very tinny or even things like when your therapist is working from home and their background is super messy you you don't really want to see those things but that was very much from our perspective and yes it annoys some other people and yes we can fix those little things and we will put some effort into fixing those things but we learned that it's not it's ultimately not the thing that people care about the most so we we took a lot of emphasis away from that and put it much more on the ultimate value that we bring to people so it came down to those three things right so one uh very high quality therapist two very high quality matching and a match guarantee uh, and then three is making everything easy. And that's where things like good quality audio, good quality video come in. But it's just one of three USPs, let's say. It's not yeah. the thing that, that um, defines the product. So that was a good learning. One other one, we had a great conversation with actually not our, not a, let's say a classic customer interview, but it was our copywriter. He was starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable because because he saw that we were potentially becoming a brand for the wealthy because of the way that we were positioning, like high quality, our prices maybe a little bit higher than some other places you can access it. And this kind of hit, this kind of got us to the heart because that was definitely not what we were setting out to do to create this kind of elitist product and brand. 
But at the same time, when we sat down and really talked about this, we knew that we had a belief that the way to make therapy accessible is not to squeeze your the margins everywhere you can, pay your therapist less, use technology to replace the core experience of therapy just so it's cheaper. We knew that wasn't the best way to be able to make therapy more accessible. So we didn't believe that what we should be doing is just getting the price down to a, a lower amount by squeezing all of those different parts of that contribute to the margin. Instead, that led to a conversation where we said, how can we make therapy truly accessible to those who can't afford it? Not just those who can afford it, but want it to hurt a little bit less when they pay for it. We were talking about this before the before we started recording, right? If you can pay, if you pay 100 euros an hour or 50 euros an hour, they're both, that's both, that's a lot of money. It doesn't matter who you are, that's a lot of money. 50 euros or 100 euros an hour, it's just one hurts a little bit less than the other. But by making your service 50 euros, by squeezing all of those contributors to the margin, you're not really making it more accessible. You're just offering a cheaper product to those who can afford it anyway. So we want to build something into the model where we can stay true to the high quality promise of the the brand and the product, which does demand a certain price, but then to use our success to find a way to truly make therapy accessible to those who, who can't afford it at all, off the top of my head homeless people, for example, because it doesn't matter if you charge 100 or 50. If you're living on the streets, it's very unlikely you can afford either end of that that range. So it's that kind of conversation that led to some great product conversations, let's say, and business model conversations. Very cool insights as well. And it's definitely, like we mentioned, it's a very valid point as well. The 50 versus 100 is like the this notion of trying to make things more accessible to people i think often you just forget about what accessibility really means and Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time it's coming from a point of privilege where you're thinking about this and not really understanding okay like that 50 euros is not going to make the difference like it's really about how do you actually give the service away for free potentially that's really what true accessibility is Uh, and not trying to squeeze different angles uh, to cut the prices when you just like you say making the bite a little bit less for people that can already afford it but yeah interesting challenge as well and i think also one thing we talked about as well is this has really helped dictate the copy but then i think another thing and correct me if i'm wrong this has probably dictated now a lot of your areas of focus for the initial product and where maybe in the past you would have spent a lot more time on the video quality and that's which is probably still going to be important to you but has the shift focused now in terms of the accessibility the therapist that you bring on board would you say that's more of a priority now for you to get those things right first Yeah, absolutely. So just as you said, whereas at the beginning, maybe we would be looking for those little details that we could focus on that improves the the online experience. Now they've become more of just an expectation. You should expect your video to work. You should expect the audio to be of a good quality, etc. But it's no longer the thing where we're thinking, right, what are all of those tiny little details where we can make the difference? It's, It's simply we expect there to be a decent quality for anybody using our service. But the shift of focus has definitely gone much more onto the quality of uh, the therapists we bring in. So we put certain criteria in place. So for example, we only hire people who have at least seven years practicing experience giving therapy. And of course, people who are accredited and qualified, that's a given. But also they go through a six-stage recruitment process. So we put a lot of focus into defining what those six stages are, which includes an actual therapy session. So all of our therapists give one of us, the team, a therapist session so we can get a taste for it. So our focus definitely went a lot more onto that and then onto 
the way that we can match people. So when somebody tells us about their goals and their concerns, their questions, how do we find them the best match therapist? And how do we reduce some of the anxiety around uh, that part of the process, which when we talk to customers, they tell us this is one of the most painful things because you essentially have to date therapists. You have to try a few of them before you find, and it makes sense, right? It's like normal dating. It's very unlikely you're going to hit the nail on the head the first time you try it, Yeah. but that's time consuming. And more importantly, for a lot of people, it's expensive. So we take away a lot of that burden and we take on the expense if we don't match you with the right therapist the first time. A speed dating sessions set up. <laughs> yeah, not quite like that, but yeah, I quite yeah. like that actually. We should think about how to build that into it. Nice. Cool. So yeah, I see we're running up on time and I want to make sure I have saved the question that I ask everybody on the show is let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You arrive at a new company and churn and retention is not doing great. And you they've head up marketing and they they've come to you this year and said, We want to try and turn things around. We want to get some results, but we want them fast. We want them in the first 90 days. What would you want to be doing with your time in those first 90 days to try and move the needle and uh, make a dent in churn and retention for the company? So I would do three things. I would, one, talk to the people who aren't churning. I would, two, talk to the people who are churning uh, and ask why on both accounts. So why are you still here and why are you still here? And three, look at your, your systems and your processes. So literally, is there anything that you're doing that's a bit silly in terms of maybe you're inviting people to churn, but you're putting people off at a certain stage of the journey, whatever it might be. So literally your email flows, your product experience, is it hard to upgrade, all of that kind of stuff. So those three things. So basically find out why people who aren't churning are stick, sticking around, why people who are churning are leaving, and three, are you doing anything silly in terms of you know, what you actually have in place now? Sure. And I think with those three things, that's going to give you a pretty good idea of where to focus your attention straight away. Again, thinking about themes, I think from doing those things, you'll come out, but you're not going to come out with 10 or 15 themes to work on. You'll come out with two or three things that yeah. can be actioned pretty quickly. Some low-hanging fruit as well. Cool. And then the last question maybe to ask on this as well is what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew getting started in your career? That's a great question. If I'm honest, when I first started my career, I probably didn't even know what churn meant. (laughs) If we're thinking back far enough. I think the, the biggest learning for me has been just not assuming And I've definitely made a lot of assumptions throughout my career, even I'm talking up into relatively recently. It's very easy to think that you know what people need, what problems they want solved and how to communicate it. But unless you're constantly in touch with those people, it's very unlikely you've actually got it. So the biggest learning for me around churn is to just talk to people and truly understand what it is they need. Because if you give it to them, why would they churn? Yeah, so simple. So simple, yet so difficult to, to get right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, cool, Sancho. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Uh, is there any final thoughts you want to leave uh, the audience with? Like anything they should be aware of or keep up to speed with the work and what you're working on? I've got nothing too profound to say, I'm afraid. But yeah, I'd love people to to follow the journey. Oliva.house. And we have some Instagram accounts and things like that. And I'm serious about the feedback. So if anyone listening to this 
has anything to say, I would love to, I would love to hear it. You can contact us through the usual channels. Awesome. Uh, thanks a lot for joining today. It's been a pleasure chatting as always, and uh, I wish you best of luck now going forward on this journey and like many more custom interviews and uh, success going forward. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.